Ah, summertime. It's when a lot of people go on vacation to get away from it all. Getting away from our regular routines and responsibilities, spending special time with family and friends, unplugging, decompressing, recreating. It's something we long for, we plan for, we look forward to, we get excited about. Now, the coronavirus has obviously put a dent in some of our plans for doing that this summer, but that's going to pass. But we make reservations, we buy tickets, we pack, we load up, we head out for our dreamed about destination, but something happens. So we travel all those miles away to this respite in paradise and discover that the one thing we really wanted to leave behind most came with us. I brought me with me. You know, the me that has the hurts, habits, and hang-ups, as they say, the me who struggles with selfishness and insecurities and issues, the me with the baggage that I didn't want to bring along. That's the fly in the ointment for us as human beings. No matter where we go, no matter how successful we become, no matter how educated we become, no matter how influential we are no matter how drunk or high we get, no matter how much shopping we do, no matter how we try to distract and numb ourselves, we discover that our self is still tagging along with us everywhere we go. And it's our self that we find messing things up for us. The thing that we're trying to escape from most is the thing that we can't get away from. All of that messy, ugly, heartbreaking stuff is either my sin or someone else's sin that has impacted me. We often think of sin as the doing of things that are wrong. And it is that, but sin is much larger than that too. Our alienation, our separation from God and from ourself and from each other they're all byproducts of sin. Sin lies at the bottom of virtually all human suffering and misery and disappointment. It's the problem of sin that all religions, philosophies, programs are trying to solve. Different terms are used to refer to this problem, but sin is what lies at the bottom of the human condition. We began a study through the letter of 1 John last time. And we made our way through the first four verses of the letter, which serve as an introduction. John, the author of 1 John, he knew Jesus Christ personally. He heard firsthand what Jesus said. He saw firsthand what Jesus did. He studied firsthand the life of Jesus. He touched Jesus with his very own hands. John was Jesus' closest friend during his years of ministry on earth. No one spent more time with Jesus during his years of ministry than John. It could be said that no one is more qualified to speak about who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught than John. John wrote the letter of 1 John to encourage and to strengthen believers in their faith and to confront the false teaching that was infiltrating the churches at the time. John emphasizes three things in his letter, repeating them again and again. 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came in human flesh. We need to obey the commandments of God. We need to show love for others. John says that to be a genuine, complete, authentic follower of Jesus, a Christian, we need to believe in the incarnation of Jesus as the Christ, we need to follow the commandments of God, and we need to show love to others. We could summarize John's teaching with three words, really. Believe, obey, and love. Well, let's flip over to 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. That's where we're going to be picking up today in our study through this letter. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's go back up to verse 5 and work our way through this passage. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. The him that John is referring to is Jesus Christ. John is letting us know where he got his information from and who is the authority behind what he's saying. The things that I am telling you are things that I learned directly from Jesus Christ himself, John is saying. We should always want to know where a person got their information from about God and spiritual things. It's unfortunate that there is no field of study where people are more willing to give a free pass than in this area of spiritual matters, though. People will believe almost anything from almost anyone in this area. The lack of discernment and the level of gullibility are shocking and disturbing. Many of the people who claim to be some kind of authority about spiritual things base their claims on nothing more than their own misguided opinions and imaginations. Why would we listen to someone like that, especially when the stakes are so high? I mean, eternity is at stake. What we teach from what, what we teach here at this church is we teach from and through the Bible. You, you may get tired of hearing quotes from the Bible to support and substantiate the things that I say. You may find the methodical chapter by chapter, verse by verse teaching from the Bible that I do to be boring. But I want you to know where I'm getting my information from about the things of God. What I know, you can know too. Because what I know can be found right here in this book, the Bible, and you can find that same stuff too. It's a temptation for a teacher to want to give something new and different. But there is nothing new. The message has remained the same since the day Jesus spoke it. If someone tries to tell you something different, 
you would do well to be wary of what that person is saying. So here's the message that John heard from Jesus. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John begins with a declaration about the nature and the character of God. This helps us to know what is needed for us to have fellowship with God. I, I want to say at this point that John, he continues to use this word translated into English as fellowship. And he's using that word to refer to having a close, intimate relationship with God. Saying that God is light emphasizes his splendor and his glory, his truthfulness, his purity. God is perfect. He is the source and the absolute standard for everything that is good and right and beautiful. It's in this environment of perfect, holy, sinless, righteous goodness that a person must enter to have fellowship, a closer, intimate relationship with God. But there is a huge problem, isn't there? Because none of us, none of us are perfect, holy, sinless, righteous, and good. Our sin has broken fellowship with God. Our sin prevents us from having fellowship with God. That's a problem. How is it solved? Well, let's continue. In verse 6, he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. John confronts the claim being made by the false teachers, which we mentioned last time in the introduction. The, the way the false teachers were seeking to deal with the problem of sin was to basically deny its relevance. Sin doesn't matter, they said. God is only interested in the spiritual. Live however you want in the physical realm. A problem with their reasoning had to do with their understanding of the spiritual versus the physical. They saw the spiritual and the physical as two distinct separate realms. So what they did in the physical wouldn't have no impact on the spiritual. And the spiritual is the only thing, they say, that God cares about. In truth, the physical is a subset within the spiritual. So everything in the physical matters, both in the physical and the spiritual realm. They are not separate and distinct from each other. They are interconnected. What we do in the physical matters. It has impact on our life, physically and spiritually. Although different words are used, a similar approach to dealing with this problem of sin is used in our popular culture in our own day. Sin is irrelevant. We are told human beings are basically good. Sin doesn't really exist. It's an old-fashioned idea that has long outlived whatever usefulness it might have had in the past. Ironically, the blame for the bad stuff that is in this world is often placed at the feet of God by these very same people who believe in the innate goodness of humanity. They say God is the one who is responsible for evil. God is the one who has allowed all of the bad stuff in our world. It's God's fault. There's a denial of responsibility by them for what is wrong 
in this world. They ask the question, how can a good God allow evil to exist? And when they ask that question, they're implying that either God is not good or God is too weak and incompetent to do anything about it. Well, God is not guilty for the bad stuff in this world, but he has done something about the bad stuff in this world and in our lives. In order for us to receive his solution, though, we are going to have to acknowledge our culpability. We have to acknowledge our guilt. We have to own our sin. We have to come clean before God about who's really responsible for this mess. John says, we lie and do not live truthfully if we claim to have fellowship with God, to have a relationship with God, but we live our lives in a way that is inconsistent with God's character of light. We can't live in the darkness and have a relationship with one who's in the light. It's impossible. Light and darkness have nothing in common with one another. They can't have a relationship with one another. They are incompatible with one another. They can't occupy the same space. Light dispels darkness. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. John now gives the contrast to verse 6. Rather than denying the relevance of sin, which justifies the practicing of sin, which is all part of walking in darkness, instead, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what does it mean to walk in the light? It includes all that John is going to be talking about in this passage. We will discover these things as we go along, but to summarize briefly, Walking in the light includes belief in the theological truth about who Jesus Christ is, the incarnate Son of God, and what he has accomplished for us through his sacrificial death and resurrection. It includes acknowledgement of our true condition before God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God, and we are unable to have fellowship with him unless something is done about our sin. And it includes living by the commandments of God in this life, the most important application of those being the showing of love to others. John lists two resultant blessings of walking in the light here. We have fellowship with one another. We will truly have fellowship or relationship with God. The false teachers, they were claiming to have a relationship with God, to have fellowship with God, to be one with the spiritual. But they really weren't. They really didn't have a relationship with God. The other is, it says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The barrier, which is sin, preventing us from having fellowship with God, will be removed. And the thing that removes our sin, the thing that purifies us, is the life blood of Jesus Christ, which was spilled when he died. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The false teachers were claiming that since they possessed the special gnosis, knowledge, bringing them into communion with that which is entirely spirit, God, 
according to their teaching. They were beyond the categories of good and evil. Moral restrictions no longer applied to them. They were now spiritual, so it didn't matter what they did in their physical bodies. They could live any way they wanted. A similar kind of thinking exists even in our own day. It's phrased differently, but it has a similar fundamental idea underneath it all. Today, it goes something like this. Human beings, in their essential nature, are good. As a result, it's important that each individual be true to their personal self above everything else. If you are comfortable with your behavior, then it's okay. No one can tell you what's right and wrong for you. You must discover your own personal principles and ideals to live by. You must discover your true inner self and allow that true self to be expressed. Whenever sin is denied as an ongoing reality in our life, there is always also a corresponding denial of responsibility for our actions. It's not my fault. I'm not the one to blame. It's somebody else's fault. It's something else's fault. Guilt is to be denied at all costs. John's response is simple and straightforward. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are living a life of self-deception and denial. John makes it clear that what we need is forgiveness from the holy God that we have offended with our sin. That is the only thing that will bring the healing that we need and put the new life of Jesus in us. Lying to ourselves and to God and others about our sin doesn't deal with the problem. Verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Walking in the light is done not by hiding or denying our sins, but by confessing them. We are then connected to the mercy of God and we will receive forgiveness and purification. We can confess our sins without fear because God is faithful and just, it tells us. We know that He loves us. He doesn't treat us as our sins truly deserve. Instead, He extends mercy, compassion, grace to us. Flip over to Psalm 103 for a moment. Verse 8. The psalmist here, David, is writing and he says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Romans 2.4 It says, God's kindness is intended to lead us 
to repentance. That scripture reminds me of a story from my childhood, and I've shared this story before with some of you, but I think it's worth sharing again since I don't really have that many stories anyway. So, you know, I, I, I got to use what I got. But I was about six years old at the time, and there was this girl who lived next door to me who was about a year younger. I despised that girl. She was really spoiled and a terrible tattletale, always creating problems for me and my friends. Well, one day, her dad brought her home some pollywogs. And pollywogs are one of the coolest things in the world to a six-year-old boy. And these pollywogs were the big ones, the bullfrog pollywogs, the coolest of all pollywogs. Well, she was showing them around the neighborhood to all of the rest of us, rubbing it into all of us that she had these awesome pollywogs and the rest of us didn't. These are all mine. She had the pollywogs in a paper cup, which she sat on her front porch when she went into the house. Well, it was all just more than I could stand. So as soon as she went in for dinner, I snuck over to her house and I stole those pollywogs and I put them on my own back porch. I wasn't a very smart criminal though because I, I left the pollywogs in the same paper cup and I hadn't really thought through what I was going to do with them once I had them in my position. I wasn't going to be able to really share my prize with any of my friends since everyone would know where those polywogs had come from. I figured all that would get worked out over time. Uh, the the polywogs the, the were now mine, and that is what really mattered. They're mine. Well, it wasn't more than an hour later that my mom called me into the house to speak to me. And she asked me where I had gotten those polywogs on the back step. And I told her that I had found them hoping that that would be the end of her inquiry. Well, unknown to me, my mom had gotten a call from that little tattletale girl's mom about her daughter's missing pollywogs. My mom knew where those pollywogs had come from. She knew they were the next-door neighbor's pollywogs. I mean, that was easy enough for anyone to deduce. But rather than just taking the belt to me for stealing, which I clearly deserved, she wanted me to admit what I had done. So she said to me, Jeff, I want you to tell me the truth about those polywogs. I'm not going to spank you. Just tell me the truth. Did you take those polywogs from the girl next door? Well, the extending of mercy to me by my mother for a crime that I was clearly guilty of was too much for my little criminal heart. I started bawling my eyes out, and I confessed the whole thing. Yes, I took her polywogs. I'm sorry. Well, after I had managed to gain my composure, my mom told me, that I was going to have to return those polywogs to that girl, and I was going to have to apologize to her for what I'd done. Let me assure you, having to confess my crime to that girl 
that I despise so much and apologize to her was a much more painful punishment than a spanking would have ever been. That experience ended my career as a criminal. It was one of the best lessons I had ever learned in life. Verse 10, John writes, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we are implying that Jesus Christ dying for our sins was unnecessary, that it was a meaningless act. We don't need a Savior. We haven't sinned. Sin is not a problem for me. Is similar thinking present in our day? Oh, sure it is. I mean, in fact, it's a common obstacle that we face when we're trying to share Jesus Christ with people in our day. People ask, well, why do I need a Savior? What do I need to be saved from? I'm a good person. Adopting the view that we have not sinned is very dangerous because it prevents us from being able to receive the forgiveness of God offered through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, John shifts gears a little here. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the previous verses, he's been addressing the claims being made by the false teachers. Now he's assuming a pastoral, fatherly tone, addressing believers. He begins with these words, my dear children. I write this to you so that you will not sin. Sin is an enemy. It keeps us from the light. It destroys our fellowship with God and with others and with ourselves. Sin damages us. Its consequences cause suffering and pain and deep regrets. Sin is to be avoided at all cost. Our aim is to be holy and to obey all of God's commandments, being imitators of Jesus. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate with the Father. The Greek word translated into English as advocate, it means a helper, an intercessor, one who comes alongside another in time of need. Jesus Christ, he gave up his life for us, dying as an atoning sacrifice, making our forgiveness possible, purifying us from sin by his own blood. He now continues to advocate for us, to help us, to intercede for us before the Father. Hebrews 7.24, it says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely or to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. See, the answer to our sin is not self-deception and denial. The answer is the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice and advocate. Jesus doesn't make excuses for our sin or deny that it exists. I mean, that would require him to lie. He enters a plea of guilty on our behalf before the court of God. And then he reminds that same court that he has paid our fine with his own life. 
Jesus Christ is the best defense attorney one could ever hope to have. He has paid our fine. He has taken our punishment. And he continually pleads our case before the throne of heaven. The righteous one. This title for Jesus, it it conveys his moral perfection, his utter sinlessness. The righteous one. This sinless, righteous being beautiful Jesus stepped into our place and he suffered the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we can be free. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one gave his righteousness to us and he took the punishment for our sin upon himself. Finally, verse 2, it says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What atonement accomplishes is revealed in the word itself. Just put a hyphen in two places. At one meant. At one meant. Atonement makes the two who were once estranged one with each other. He makes us as one. We were separated from God because of our sin. Fellowship with God had been destroyed because of our sin. Jesus Christ, he brought atonement so that we can be at one again with God. We can have fellowship with him again. We can be brought back into an intimate union with him again. He says, last, not only for our sin, but also for the sin of the whole world. John is not saying that every human being will be saved in the end. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice that has been made available for everyone. That atoning sacrifice becomes your sacrifice for you by faith when you believe in Jesus as your Savior. In closing, John knows those of us who are believers that we will sin even after we've become believers and start following Jesus. He doesn't offer this as an excuse for us to continue living the same way we did before becoming a Christian. But for the true, sincere believer, this makes it possible for us to experience real peace and joy, doesn't it? I mean, we've been forgiven. We are being forgiven. We are going to be forgiven. Christ covers our past, present, and future. Our sin has been dealt with and taken care of through all of time and eternity. We have reason to rejoice and be thankful. We're no longer having to live in fear of punishment and wrath. God is our Father. We are His children. We have an advocate before our Father, always speaking in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Let me ask you a question. Have you entered into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ? Many of you have. 
but some of you have not. You have a problem, just like all of us do. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has put you on the wrong side of the all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God of the universe. He wants to reconcile with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to have a close, intimate relationship with you. You and I need to have a close, intimate relationship with God to experience the fullest possible kind of life. Jesus Christ, he came and he died to make that possible. Will you respond to his offer? He wants to give you a new life. And it starts with you being honest with God, coming into his light by confessing your sin, taking hold of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus as yours. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, be forgiven of your sins, have a new life and a new future with God, you can begin that by praying this prayer with me. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me for my sins. I'm going to follow you from this day forward. Come into my life and change me. Give me your new life. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you've sincerely prayed that prayer and you really meant it, Jesus Christ has come into your life. He is your atoning sacrifice. Your sin is purified, removed from you, your guilt before God taken away. You've begun a new life. You have a new relationship with God that you never had before. You have fellowship with God, real fellowship with God. Walk in that, live in that. Follow Jesus. Let's all close in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word today. You've spoken to us through John's letter. We thank you for our advocate, Jesus. We thank you for our sacrifice of atonement, Jesus. We thank you that you have given your son for us so that we can have fellowship with you. Father, help us to take hold of that amazing thing that you've given us, this new relationship that we have with you through Jesus today. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for saving us, for rescuing us, for giving us a new life with you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.